We're in Joshua chapter 7, and we're going to read the whole chapter. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till the evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring the people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies unless you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua made Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He made the clans of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua made his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honour him. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. 
Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains there to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. This is God's word. Good evening, my name's Phil, I'm one of the ministers on the staff here. It's lovely to have you with us. We've got quite a passage to get through again tonight. Let's pray. Father, we read uh, very hard things tonight in your word. Uh, Things that perhaps we struggle to accept about you, and certainly things we struggle to accept about ourselves. So we do pray that you would give us minds that love the truth and that are able to recognize truth and hearts that are willing to respond rightly to what you say. We ask for your spirit's help as we look at his word tonight. Amen. Look, we saw last week God's destructive judgment fall on the city of Jericho and the wickedness of the Canaanites who lived there. Today we see that the God who destroyed the Canaanites is a God who shows no favoritism. God does not have double standards. God takes the sins of the Israelites every bit as seriously as the sins of the Canaanites. Do not for a moment think, if you're a Christian here tonight, that God somehow doesn't care about your sin or mine. Do not fool yourself if you're a Christian here tonight. God does not turn a blind eye to the sins of Christians. Now, as we go through this chapter, which is really about uh, sin, we're going to learn some sobering lessons about the nature of sin. But always, I think there is a danger uh, for two groups of people in a passage like this, as we look at sin, at disobedience against God. For some people, we have a very tender conscience. And whenever the Bible talks about sin, we feel utterly condemned. Uh, we wonder, uh, we hear what the, the warnings of the Bible and we think that's me, that's me, that's me. And, and we think I can't possibly be forgiven. God cannot possibly love me. I must be outside of the kingdom of God. And I want to say to you, if you have a tender conscience, that there is not a single word that God says tonight in his Bible that in any way undermines the fact that if you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins are totally paid for. If you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be assured that God will bring you safely to heaven and will declare you righteous and much loved on judgment day. But as well as those of us with too tender a conscience, I fear that there'll be a number amongst us who have the opposite issue. Yep, 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 Jesus pays for sin. Yeah, okay, so frankly, it doesn't, why does it matter? Jesus paid for it. We don't have too tender a conscience. It's like we don't have a conscience at all. It's like, yep, Jesus pays for sin. It's no big deal. We're blasé. We're, you know, too comfortable with our sins, to be honest. Yep, I'm not perfect, but hey, who is? And Jesus pays for my sin. Let me warn you that the Bible has deep, rich, solid comfort for those who are troubled by their sin. But the Bible doesn't have a single word of comfort for those who are comfortable in their sin. It's hard to hear a passage like this right. It's always worrying that the wrong people will hear the wrong thing. So we just need to pray that God will help us as we've prayed 
uh, that we'll hear the right things from his word tonight. Let's look together at Joshua chapter 7, and we'll pick it up at verse 1, which seems like a good place to start. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So they've, they were told that the attack on Jericho was not tribal expansion, it was God's judgment. And therefore they were not to take anything. Everything was to be destroyed or given to God. But Achan steals and God's anger, we're told, burns. And God's blazing anger is really the backdrop for the whole of this passage. Until we get to the very end in, in verse 26 and finally we read, Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. God's anger blazes through every verse of this passage. Now God's anger is not a, oh, he's just angry like some sort of abusive drunk who flies off the handle. God's anger is his settled, thoughtful, considered, rightful response to wickedness. But you see, God, uh, he doesn't just have a cognitive response. I judge that that is wrong in a sort of cold, computing fashion. No, because God loves what is good, God hates what is evil. Because God loves people made in his image, God is angry when wickedness takes place. His love for good means anger against wickedness. And we saw how good that was last week. It is good that God is angered by wickedness. It is good that when, uh, by all accounts, even my most right-wing friends say, the MP Joe Cox who was killed was one of the good ones. She was one of the kindest, most compassionate MPs in Parliament. When someone like that is gunned down by uh, some deranged man, it is right that God gets angry. When dozens of young gay men and women are gunned down in a nightclub, by a deranged man in the States. It is right that God gets angry. When thousands of Christians are beheaded and burned alive by Islamic State in the Middle East, as happens all the time and never makes the news anymore, then it is right that God gets angry. Not just shrugs his shoulders and says, hmm, that is wrong, but gets angry. The God who loves passionately is really angry with wickedness. And the truth is, if God didn't respond to wickedness like that, he would not be worthy of our worship. He absolutely would not be worth worshipping unless he is a God who loves what is good and hates what is evil with every fibre of his eternal being. The question, though, at the heart of this passage, last week we really considered the the goodness of God's judgment. And if you've got questions about that, I, I guess I'd encourage you to listen to last week. But the question that tonight's passage really addresses is, once God's anger has been aroused, how can the flames of his anger ever be quenched? Once God's anger is aroused, how can it be quenched? And the answer this passage provides is only when the sin is punished. God's anger will only be quenched when the sin is punished. Look, three points for you. You've got them on the sheet. My sin affects you. Our sin enslaves us. And only Jesus can save us from our sin. Uh, We'll take them in turn as we go through the passage. Firstly, uh, verses 2 to 15. My sin affects you. This is the sobering lesson of these uh, first verses. 
my sin, which is just a, well, it covers a a load of stuff in the Bible, but at heart, in one sense, it's disobedience against God. That's one simple way to understand it. Disobedience against God. And my sin affects you in this church. Sin is not a private matter. Your sin affects me and affects everybody else here. If you call yourself a Christian, if you're part of this church, your sin affects me and affects the people sitting around you. Achan sins and Israel suffers. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it. And don't worry the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai. They killed 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the heart of the people melted in fear and became like water. Now, there is no mention of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, in verses 2 to 5. Perhaps, perhaps this indicates a people who are complacent, presumptive after the, the victory of a mighty Jericho. Perhaps that's the sort of atmosphere that makes a man like Achan think his disobedience is no big deal. Perhaps it indicates uh, a spiritual malaise in the Israelites. Perhaps. But that's not what is emphasized here. The brutal emphasis of this passage is that Israel suffers because one man, Achan, sins. And just as there was no human explanation of the the victory of a mighty Jericho, but that the hand of God was with the Israelites, so there is no human explanation for the defeat by puny Ai, except that the hand of God is no longer with Israel, but is against them. It must have been a shattering defeat. Suddenly, they're all alone, surrounded by hostile tribes, and the most puny town in the entire region has managed to defeat them. Must have been absolutely terrifying. And so Joshua and the leaders are humble themselves. They do what's right. They, they cry out to God. Uh, verses six to nine. And it's a good prayer. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, sprinkling dust on their heads. These aren't rituals. This is just an expression of real brokenness and desperation. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we'd been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe us out and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your own great name? It's a good prayer built on the final, uh, the final phrase on God act for the honor of your name. That's his ultimate concern. But extraordinarily, as he's praying, God answers. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. 
They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen. They've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, imagine, uh, I don't know, something terrible happens. Uh, we're told uh, uh, the building, we can no longer have it. It's being sold. We've got nowhere to meet. Uh, we can't afford another building in central London. We genuinely have no idea what we're going to do. And so we have a prayer meeting. Uh, we encourage the church to fast and to pray. And uh, after a day of fasting, we gather together to pray. And we're crying out, God, please, would you help us? Please, would you uh, somehow uh, change the mind of the authorities so that we can continue to meet here? And suddenly there's a voice from heaven, shut up. Enough. I don't want to hear your prayers. I won't answer because you are disobedient. God is teaching the Israelites and he's teaching us that prayer is never a substitute for obedience. Religious devotion, passionate praise is never a substitute for doing what God says. As if I can disobey God Monday to Saturday and pray and praise and things will be all right on Sunday. Prayer is never a substitute for obedience to God. Psalm 66 verse 18, the psalmist says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, then, Lord, you would not have listened. Now, that does not mean that if you have unanswered prayer in your life tonight, and I guess if I say who here has got things they're praying for and they've not been answered yet, every hand should go up if we're a praying people. It does not mean that any time you find there are unanswered prayers in your life, it must mean that you are cherishing some secret hidden sin. But it does mean that if I am cherishing sin in my heart, hiding it away, refusing to fight it, then I'd be a fool if I think God is going to listen to me. So it doesn't mean that any time uh, prayers aren't answered, it must mean I'm sinning. The Bible makes that very clear. But it does mean if I am indulging in sin, if I am hiding sin, if I am deliberately ignoring the voice of God, then I'd be a fool if I think God will answer me and bless me. Israel will know nothing but defeat, God says, until the disobedience, the wickedness is rooted out from their hearts. Now, let me just hit the pause button at this moment because I think there are a couple of problems or a couple of objections that are, that may well be bubbling up in our minds at this point. The first is the punishment doesn't really fit the crime. Uh, and the second is how on earth can God hold the whole of Israel responsible for the actions of just one individual? Let me deal with them in turn. Uh, firstly, the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. Uh, under the notorious Black Act of 1723 in this country, 50 crimes were added to the statute book as now uh, meriting the death penalty, including, get this, theft of goods worth 12 pence. I cannot think of anything in the world you can buy for 12 pence in London anymore. I mean, seriously, 12, what can you buy for 12 pence in London? You could be put to death in the late 1700s for the theft of 12 pence worth of goods. Now we look back at that and see that was barbaric, it was wicked, and it was brutally unjust. 
here, you've got an entire army defeated, 36 men dead. You have 36 families bereaved, 36 mothers grieving, 36 children maybe, suddenly fatherless, 36 young wives perhaps, brutally bereaved. All because one man nicked some Armani suits and a couple of bits of gold and silver. It seems like a just wild overreaction from God. But it's not about the gold and the silver and the clothes. It's about the disobedience. Achan directly, knowing what he's doing, high-handedly is the whole Bible word, disobeys God. And to disobey God is always a serious thing. Even when we can't see the consequence. I mean, seriously, how, how could that be problematic? Just to nick some clothes and bits of metal. I mean, how could it be problematic when I'm allowed to eat from every tree in the garden, to eat from the fruit of just that one tree? I mean, surely nothing serious is going to happen. And yet, as Adam and Eve found out, as Achan finds out, as the Israelites find out, disobedience against God is always a serious matter. It is never a trivial thing to rebel against our king, our creator. Now, related to that, I think we have a problem with God holding Israel responsible for the actions of one person. Actually, I tell you what, if you're a Christian, you should be grateful because I'm very grateful that God holds us responsible for the actions of one man, Jesus. It's a good thing that God is able to do that with him. But we, we see this and we struggle with it. We think it, it just doesn't seem right. And it's the most, actually, in one sense, it's the most striking thing in the passage. Um, I mean, look at it. And when you're raised in the individualistic West, it just makes no sense. So chapter 7, verse 1, but the Israelites, plural, were unfaithful. Achan, singular, took some of them. Uh, verse 11, as God speaks now, Israel, plural, have sinned. Why? Uh, Achan, one man, has stolen. And then the, 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 you get this piling up of the word they in verse 11. Although it's only one man who's actually done it. They have violated my covenant. They have taken. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. They turn their backs and run. And as Achan is singled out, what is it Joshua tells him in verse 25, you have brought this trouble on us. We suffer because of what you have done. Achan sins, Israel suffers. And they're learning that God's people are not just a collection of individuals who individually obey God. They're a people. And the sins of the one affect the many. So yeah, Tim Peake is back on Earth. Um, we no longer have an astronaut. It's a terrible day for Britain. It was quite nice saying we have an astronaut. You kind of feel like you, you've got a, you've got a place on the, on the global table. There is some kudos in having an astronaut. Uh, but it's, it feels almost quite sort of banal these days. You know, he's up there in space tweeting to people as he zips around the Earth. It all just feels so local. Um, but I remember growing up, being a tiny bit older than some of you, that it was, it was quite a big deal going to space back in the 80s. 
And I remember we, all, we would all be crowded around the TV to watch each shuttle launch. And I remember on the 28th of January, 1986, watching um, as Challenger took off with, um, for the first time, a, a civilian, Krista McAuliffe, a school teacher who'd won this ballot and been trained as an astronaut and was going up and uh, kept cutting to pictures of her class all watching the, as the, the preparation and then the launch. And Challenger took off and zoomed up into the air, vast billowing clouds of smoke from the rockets. And then... And then it, oh, something, and you realize something's gone awfully wrong. As it was just this enormous explosion and bits just flying through the air. The most technologically advanced vehicle on the planet. But one rubber ring, one rubber ceiling ring, like the things you have in your taps at home or your thermos flask. Just one of those had gone wrong. And... Everything blew up. You see, we get, we get the idea that sometimes we're part of a system and an organism. And God is telling the Israelites, you are a people. You are an organism. And actually, if one of you brings sin, oh, it can have a devastating effect on everybody. And like the Israelites, you and I, if we're part of Christchurch Mayfair, we are a... We're not just a group of individuals who gather on Sunday because each of us has chosen to follow Jesus Christ. We are that, but according to God's word, that makes us a church, a family, a body, a building. And so how I behave affects you. And how you behave affects me and affects the people sat around you. And we think, well, this is Old Testament Israel. Things are a bit different than the New Testament. But don't you remember when we were studying the, the letter of 1 Corinthians earlier this year, we got to chapter 5. And as Paul spoke about how one or two people in the church were involved in really shocking sexual sin. And he said, you've got to sort this out. It's no good saying, well, I'm not doing it. It's just them over there. He said, you know, you've got to, as a church, you've got to discipline them. And he says, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of that immorality. Because it works its way. It spreads. Sin never stays private. It's like the plague. It infects, it corrupts, it spreads. Sin has tentacles. It reaches out as nuanced and And gentle as it looks, as sweetly as it's often packaged, as innocent as it seems, as tasty as it is going in, it is always reaching out. It is never happy to stay where it is. Always it spreads. Always it grows. And therefore it is never safe. Do you know um, the three stages of sickness at work? If you're in your first year in work in London, I'll give you this for free. Uh, three stages of sickness at work. And being this is Britain, uh, you can get colds in the summer as well. The summer as well. So three stages. The first stage, you're still quite diligent. And, you know, I get paid to do this job. So I don't care how sick I feel. I'll soldier on. I'll make it in and I'll, I'll do an honest day's work. The second stage, you get a bit more jaded. You've been at work a little bit longer. And they take me for a ride. If I'm sick, it's Netflix. That's it. Season 28 of 24, and that's my, that's my week. Uh, stage two, if, if I'm sick, I'll stay at home. Stage three, stage three, I really am fed up with the place I work. If I'm sick, I'm going in and I'm going to infect the rest of them. That's how, that's how it works. 
But let me tell you this. If you've got tuberculosis or Ebola and you like the people who are sitting around you now, you would not come to church tonight. If you've got a fatal infectious disease, you would not come to church and infect other people if you have any love for them at all. And yet, when you and I indulge secret sins in our hearts, and we are part of a family like this, we bring spiritual disease and we infect those around us. Achan's sin is serious because it's disobedience against God. And Achan's sin is serious because it won't stay hidden in his tent. It'll spread. Those attitudes, those actions will spread just as surely as Ebola would spread if he'd brought that rather than gold from Jericho into the camp. Israel has been defeated now. But Achan's sin still lies hidden under his tent. And so still at this point, God's anger burns. And so having learned first that uh, my sin affects you, we secondly, we find our sin enslaves us. Uh, Joshua passes this grave warning from God uh, through the camp. Verse 13, uh, God's still speaking and he tells Joshua to pass on this message. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. The family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. And whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Achan and his family hear this warning and they do Nothing. Did they convince themselves God can't see what's buried under our tent? I do wonder how much he slept that night or whether his conscience was prickling away, nagging him. That sort of, that just sense of unease in his stomach as he tossed and turned at night. I wonder if they could hear from their tent the crying of some of the bereaved family of the 36 who'd been killed. But whatever they felt, they did nothing. But God sees and God knows. And so the whole nation, Achan included, they gather around the center of the camp of Israel where the Ark of the Covenant is, the tent of meeting. And we read verse 16, early the next morning, Joshua made Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. You think, doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. Did his pulse start to quicken at this point? Still, there's well over 100,000 people in Judah. It was a lucky shot. It's one of 12 tribes. Just stay calm. Everything will be fine. Verse 17. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. You can imagine his his heart's really starting to pound now and his hands are getting rather clammy. We read on. He made the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. You can imagine that sweat pouring down his back at this point chest tightening up it's getting harder and harder to breathe joshua made his family come forward man by man and Achan 
son of Kami, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. And it is too late now. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to God, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now listen to what Achan says. And see if you can hear the echo of another sin in the Bible, in the words he used to describe it. Verse 20, Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted, I desired them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. He saw, he coveted, he took. Same three verbs you read in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve go for the fruit on the tree, they saw, they desired, they took. Now let's be clear, what, hap- what we read here is not a confession of sin. This isn't Achan saying, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. He's had 24 hours to do that. He could have done it when uh, Joshua sent the messengers through the camp saying, consecrate yourselves. There are consecrated things in the camp that should have been destroyed. And that is why we're in trouble. He could have done it when his clan, his tribe were chosen, the tribe of Judah. He could have done it when his clan was chosen. He could have done it when his family were chosen. He refused to repent. He refused to come forward. He refused to own his sin. But the more interesting question than whether he uh, owns up, the much more interesting question is, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he come clean? Now, we're not told explicitly in this passage, but I think biblically we do get an answer. He did not because he could not he did not because i don't think he could anymore see the bible says again and again that sin is enslaving and deceiving and i think that once he tried on that elegant set of clothes once he'd admired himself in the mirror once he'd imagined swaggering out to work dressed like that Once he'd felt the weight of the gold in his hands, that reassuring weight and the lovely sparkle, once he'd mentally spent it on no more second-hand car for us, deposit for a flat, finally, new kitchen. Once he'd done that, I don't think he could give it up, whether he wanted to or not. As Jesus puts it, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But we Christians are brilliant at self-deception. We deceive ourselves on this. We convince ourselves that the sins that we allow to live on, that we nurture in our hearts, that we hide from other people, that we willfully indulge, we fool ourselves that we're in control. 
It's a, we're getting to what counts for summer in Britain. And uh, believe it or not, those of you who are from warmer parts of the world, people go swimming in the sea around Britain. I kid you not. You can go to the beach and it's worth going just to see it. Put your foot in the water and then watch. You just think these people are nuts. But people do it and they call it fun uh, and a holiday in Britain. But there are no sharks, so it's all right. But uh, the... And every year, the same thing happens with the RNLI, who are the, the lifeboat people. You get family, and there's a willful young children. And the dad says to the 13-year-old boy, you mustn't row the little rubber dinghy out far. It's dangerous. There are strong currents. Don't go far. Oh, you're so dull. And so the son rows out, and he gets caught in the current. And the dinghy starts to move fast. But why would he care? He's going where he wants to, away from his blooming parents. And it's great fun uh, zipping along on this current along the beach. And fine, he can stop any time he wants and turn around. And why would he turn around? He's going exactly the way he wants to. And then he realizes he's a little bit further out than he'd like to be and the figures on the shore have got very small and the waves have got quite choppy. And it's only when he tries to row back that he realizes quite how strong the current is. And now he realizes he's in real, real trouble and he needs rescue. And while we're indulging sin, it's fine. I'm doing what I want. It's, why would it, it's not a problem. I love it. It's, it's just a bit of fun. You only find out how strong the sinful desires are when you turn around and try to row back against them. And it's then you realize how much trouble you're in. And still, lots of you don't believe me. Well, if you don't believe me that your sinful desires are too strong for you, give them up tonight. Your most cherished, deep, long-held sin that you as a Christian haven't yet got rid of. Give it up tonight if it's so easy. Just for a year, just to prove me wrong. Come back in a year's time and tell me how easy it was. Sin enslaves us. And Achan is unable to give up what he has taken. Achan sins and all Israel suffers and now Achan is discovered. His sin is out in the open and confessed, but still God's anger burns. And there is nothing that Joshua can do for Achan. There is nothing Joshua can do because Joshua only has the law of God, which proclaims what must happen to the sinner. And the third thing we learn here is only Jesus can save from sin. Joshua only has the law, and so Joshua must obey the law, and the sin must be punished. And when it is, we read finally that God's anger subsides. Verse 24, then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkey, and sheep, his tent and all he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they'd stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. It's a terrible fate, but you do not deal with cancer by administering vitamin pills. You have to cut it out. 
Now Joshua's name means God saves, but Joshua is just a sign, a shadow of the one who would come after him. His name is the same as the name of Jesus. It's just a Hebrew version of the Greek. But Joshua is not Jesus. And so there is nothing Joshua can do for Achan. But Jesus is not Joshua. And unlike Joshua, Jesus can bring forgiveness for guilty sinners. So how, how does this passage point us to Jesus? If the whole Bible actually points towards Jesus, as the New Testament says again and again, uh, how does it point to where do we find Jesus in this passage? Well, if you want to know where you find Jesus, it, he's there in verse 25 under the pile of rocks, charred and broken. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the blows of divine justice for sin. He was absorbing the holy fire of God's judgment in his body. And Jesus gives us something Joshua could not give to Achan. Because Jesus has died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me, he can give us somewhere to hide from the wrath of God. Forgiveness for when we're guilty. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 4 as he reflects on the death of Jesus. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That is a sacrifice. And so he, that is God, condemned sin in the flesh. By condemning Jesus on the cross. In order the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh. But the spirit. God's judgment is kindled against human sin. And it can only be quenched. By judgment on that sin. And the only options we've got according to the Bible are that. I bear it myself. As Achan did. Or I seek refuge in Jesus and he bears it for me on the cross. And if you put your trust in Jesus, then you are safe on judgment day. The fire of God's judgment has already been consumed in him. See, this passage, this passage does two things for us. It exposes sin. It warns us about sin. Let me, let me warn you, do not play with sin. See it as it is, deceitful, enslaving, and worse still, infecting for a whole community. Your private sin has a public impact. Don't play with it. See the seriousness of disobedience against God. See that though hidden and seemingly trivial, my sin can be deadly. My selfishness, sexual laxity, indifference to the needs of others can create a culture. I've seen it in church where the sinful attitudes of one or two who think they're mature enough to behave a little differently from ordinary Christians can slowly infect the culture of the rest of the church until sexual immorality becomes just one of those things that we think is a little bit, you know, it's not that serious. I've seen it happen. The actions of one or two spread and corrupt and destroy. So do not take risks with sin. 
Oh, I know there are theological questions in this passage about uh, how does it exactly apply today and um, what units. It really doesn't matter. It's pretty clear, however you cut it, sin is dangerous. It's very clear. Sin is dangerous. I remember as a, um, as a teenager in the States, um, when my parents lived there, playing um, on holiday, and we were playing uh, football in a, in a swimming pool late one evening, and the ball bounced off the water and went into the bushes. And I went to get it. Being a teenage boy, I was really fascinated. We live in a country with dangerous snakes. That's quite exciting when you're a teenage boy, and terrifying as a wimp. Uh, but I knew all about all the snakes. In the darkness, I saw that the ball had basically landed and was, there was a snake coiled around it. I could not tell whether it was uh, a cotton mouth or a copperhead or one or two other sorts of rattlesnake. Now, a copperhead's not massively dangerous. It would bite and hurt, but one or two of the others were deadly. Let me tell you, the fact that I wasn't sure whether it was going to kill me or just really injure me didn't mean I thought, well, I might as well stick my hand in. You don't play games. Some of us are justifying things are a bit different in the New Testament. We, can, we can't take passages like Joshua 5 and think we are exactly like the Israelites. I'm sure there are slight differences. But a snake is a snake. It is undeniable in the Bible. Sin is dangerous. Sin affects those around you. And sin enslaves those who play with it. So don't play with sin. Turn to Christ. Turn away from sin and turn to Christ. Because he alone can provide shelter from the judgment of God that our sins deserve. And he alone can provide the power to fight against those sinful desires that we have long nurtured. Turn to him for protection from sin. And turn to him for power to fight those enslaving battles. We're going to uh, respond to God's word now. And we're going to respond to, to God's word by sharing the Lord's Supper together. The meal that is to take refuge in Jesus. As we eat bread and drink wine, we are putting our trust in him viscerally. And we're asking for his forgiveness for our sin. And his food that sustains us and strengthens us as we seek to fight our sin and to live for him. As we come to the Lord's Supper, let us confess our sins together. Let's just spend a minute in quiet, doing business with the Lord in our own hearts. And then we'll confess our sins together. Together, Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoings and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.